Oh, what a privilege to be back in God's Word uh, together once again this morning. Uh, most of you will probably remember uh, Genesis chapter 12 when God comes to Abraham and tells Abraham to leave everything and go to a land that God will show him. And there God will make a great nation out of Abraham and all the earth will be blessed through uh, Abraham. And Abraham did it. 75 years old. We have any approaching that age these days here? Just think, everything you've, you've known, you, you, you have roots. He says, go. And Abraham did it. That is remarkable faith, yeah? And you only read two more paragraphs in to chapter 12. Pharaoh, there's a drought in the land. Pharaoh is going down to Egypt. Or uh, Abraham's going down to Egypt. And he realizes Pharaoh might want to take Sarah. So what does he do? He gives Sarah away. What happened? Suddenly there was a lapse of faith in the man. There's some sort of inconsistency, unconnected dots, you might say. This reality that he believes he can trust God to guide him and protect him and wherever that God calls him to. He could feel that and believe it cognitively, intellectually, emotionally at various times. But other moments he finds himself... Nervous. And he, and he goes a different route, a place of doubt. <clears throat> Call that those, these inconsistencies of life. Or take Moses. <clears throat> Moses, uh, by faith, goes to one of the most powerful people in the world at the time, to Pharaoh, by the command of God, and says, let my people go, leads the people out of the land of Egypt through wonderful plagues, miracles, stands before the, the, the sea, opens the sea with the staff by the power of God as the, the Pharaoh and his armies are, are approaching. He's been doing incredible things. Manna coming down from heaven. And then God tells him to speak to the rock because the people are complaining at Moses and water will come from the rock. And what does he do? But he does, the text actually says he did not believe the Lord. And so he hit the rock. That's Moses. This, these inconsistencies, these, these unconnected dots that, that we have as people. One moment full of faith, and the next moment situation. It's like, what's going on, Moses? John the Baptist. John, John the Baptist actually was given a sign from heaven that the man he was baptizing actually was the anointed one. He's out there proclaiming fire in his preaching. You brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath of God to come? I mean, just preaching fire. Gets arrested, he's thrown in prison. And you have this moment in Matthew where John sends someone back to Jesus, says, are you the one or should we be waiting for another? What happened? The Apostle Peter, I mean, Peter actually got out from the boat to step on water as Jesus told him to. Who in the world would do that? You have to have some sort of a, a trust in the person to be able to do that. As Jesus is betrayed and he's being arrested, Peter takes out a sword and he cuts off a soldier's ear. I mean, talk about a courageous man of faith. And yet, moments later, he's in a courtyard, and a servant girl says, Ah, oh, I know you. You're one of those 
You're one of those that was with him. Peter calls a curse from heaven down on himself. I don't know the man. I don't know who you're talking about. He was a man of inconsistency. I don't know about you, but I don't know any of those men personally, but I personally know the experience of all of them because I live the very same inconsistency. I, can, I know things intellectually about God, and yet sometimes there's this disconnect where, it's, where I'm not functionally, functionally living it out. We might call these the, the difference between an intellectual theology versus a functional theology. I know it. I can think about it. I can, I can, teach, I can teach about God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's goodness, God's wisdom in his plans, his ability to bring about exactly what he has declared, and yet my anxious heart functionally struggles when I look to the future, and I struggle with anxiety. It's a, it's a functional way I live, or you could, you could compare it as the cognitive theology and, and experiential. How do, what do I actually live like? What do, in my life, what do I actually display what I truly believe to be true about God? Now, that's why I'm so thankful for a passage like we have today. There we, we, we get to watch it in, in, in real time, so to say, where you, where you see uh, this, the incredible power of Jesus on display. Jesus is God Almighty, the only one who can multiply food, as it's common throughout the Old, Old Testament. Only God has that kind of authority to multiply food, multiply bread. Jesus is God Almighty. And at the same time, we see that we are like sheep, like sheep without a shepherd, and full of doubt at times. We're not connecting the dots. And yet, we see the heart of Jesus on beautiful display here. Jesus does not get frustrated with the weak sheep, the feeble sheep, the erring sheep. He comes close. That's the wonder of the gospel. God doesn't get fed up with his people, but he comes close. So I would sum up this whole section by saying, Mark declaring to us, take heart. Jesus is the God who comes close to shepherd his sheep. Jesus is the God who comes close to shepherd his sheep. Today we're just going to walk through the passage and hopefully see that theme come forward. We'll begin again, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he's, he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Because many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So here we have a, a new scene uh, here, a new scene setting if you remember in the last passage, Jesus had sent out the apostles to go proclaim the kingdom. And we're actually told that uh, when they did, they came back and they, they had uh, anointed many with, uh, who were sick with oil and healed many and they cast out many demons. And based on the way uh, you watch the disciples unfold the rest of the book and in other uh, gospels, uh, I would assume that as they come back and they tell Jesus all that they had done and seen, uh, they, they are feeling pretty good about themselves. They're pretty impressed with what they've been able to accomplish. And, you know, if I were, I don't know how this scene went down, but I'm guessing Jesus is not quite as impressed. It's, it's not that big of a deal, you might say. 
in terms of the way they're looking at it. Uh, you know, earlier in our, our marriage, uh, I was playing on a softball team, and uh, Danica would uh, drop, sometimes drive me to the games and then go do something else and pick me up. So this particular night, she, was, she, dro she drove uh, with me, dropped me off at the field. She had to go to the store, uh, came back. I had four home runs that night. Four for four, four home runs. I get in the car after the game. She says, hey, how'd it go? Now, if you don't know, that, that's impressive. At least I think it's impressive, <laughs> right? But she says, how'd it go? And I said, I had four home runs. And she said, oh, cool. You should have seen what I found at the store today. And I was like, no, Danica. Did you hear what I just said? Four for four with four home runs? That's not usual. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I found this. She just was not impressed. Right? Sometimes we, we think we got something impressive to share, and ministry can be scary like that, because sometimes we think, look at what I did. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at this. And it's just simply not that impressive. That's how I understand probably this kind of went down, because then Jesus is, let's, okay, guys, let's, let's go away. We need to, let's go to a desolate place. And that word keeps coming up throughout this passage. Now, why a desolate place by yourselves? I mean, first of all, it's quiet, right? They had been doing a lot of busy ministry, and we're told that they didn't even have time to eat. So physically, they're probably tired. They had just been traveling. They're coming back. They, they need some rest. We all need rest when we're tired like that. Uh, but also, probably, I would guess, some reflective rest, right? They've been doing a lot of ministry, and you need to stop and reflect, perhaps even for them, they need to recalibrate too, right? What, what, what am I doing this for? Who's the focus here? Let's stop, pause enough to take in what just happened. But still you could say, well, why a desolate place? A desolate place, uh, the, the, the wilderness, so to say, it's a, it's a place of danger, especially in that culture. It's a place of want. And so why a desolate place? Well, Desolate is, is meant to bring up this imagery uh, from the, the, the Israelites out in the desolate place, the wilderness. Uh, this, this, the, the desolate place, the wilderness, that was the place where God cared for his people intimately. Right? This, is, this was the place where God rained bread down from heaven. This was the place where God brought quail for his people. This was the place where God brought water out of the rock twice for his thirsty people. This was, this was the place where God revealed himself on the mountaintops in, in thunder and lightning with great terror. This was the, the place where, where God passed by Moses revealing his glory. This was the place where God intimately cared for his people, which is why when John the Baptist, you remember in chapter 1, comes on the scene, quoting from Isaiah, this, there would be one coming, the forerunner, out in the wilderness proclaiming the way of the Lord. Because of the wilderness, it was thought in the Israelite culture that, of course, as God cared for his people, rescued his people out of slavery and brought them into the, the, uh, to be his people out in the wilderness, surely that's how salvation would happen again. When Messiah would come, he would bring them out into the desolate place and care for his people. And so we would expect, as the scene starts, oh, a desolate place. This could be interesting. This could be the way that God cares for his people uniquely. And so they're off there, the text tells us, twice by themselves. And so that is the mission. That's where they're headed, off by themselves. But you can see as they get off the shore and they start sailing, from the boat you can see these little figures starting to book it in the same direction that you're going. And everybody starts piling 
following the boat. And sure enough, the more you keep sailing, the more that crowd keeps swelling and bigger and bigger until finally Jesus says, all right, let's go. And you're thinking, what? I thought we were going to desolate. That don't look like no desolate place. It's hordes of people there. And they show up, verse 33. Now many saw them going, recognized them. They ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, if you pause there, one of the questions we would be asking is, well, wait a second, I thought the mission was to get away from everybody by ourselves. So then the question is, what, well, what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to respond? This is clearly a detour. This is not what is planned here, right? I mean, what would you do? You're, so you're on your way to vacation, Right? You're driving or flying, and all of a sudden your boss calls. You going to answer that one? Probably not, right? I mean, that's sort of an inter interruption, right? So what is Jesus going to do? Well, there we have a nice surprise here. As the t passage continues, there are 30, 34, and he had compassion on them. Because they, in his mind, they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. A, a sheep without a shepherd, remember, sheep are, sheep are foolish animals. They're weak, they're vulnerable, and if they're left to themselves, they're gone. They are done. They're food for the predator. They have no ability to defend for themselves. And Jesus, looking out, that's the way he sees these people. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the good shepherd right here on display. He does, he does not come ashore, and all of a sudden he sees the people, and they're an interruption to his schedule. He's burdened. This, this is worth pausing here as you read this. You know, I don't like detour signs. I was coming home the other night, and I was wanting to get on the freeway, and the ramp is closed. And I don't really know, know where the frontage road is in this particular area. I don't know where to go. And I'm frustrated by this. I've got to pull out GPS. Now my trip's going to take longer. I've got to go this way. I've got to go that way. I just want to get home. And that's sadly how I view people sometimes. All right, I have my agenda. I'm going somewhere. I'm doing something. And people, when they jump into the schedule, that, that can be hard. Especially if I know this is going to just take a lot of more time and resources. It's going to cloud up the day. It's going to cause my weekend to be longer. That's how we treat people. But not the good shepherd. The good shepherd does not view you as burden. This is glorious news. The Lord Jesus does not look at you and say, just take a rain check. Look, I, I got a busy schedule. I don't really have time for this. Nor does he show up and say, what is wrong with you people? Can't I get a little bit of privacy? You always got to be nagging at my door. You always got these problems. Can't you just get something straight once in a while so I can have a little peace and quiet? No, this is the good shepherd. The reality is, is you know, we would never say this out loud. Sometimes we, we think of the Lord as one of these times he is going to get just, I've had enough of you. You're coming to me with that again? I don't have time for this. Deep in us, we feel that at times. 
And brothers and sisters, you who are blood-bought, you who have proclaimed Christ as Lord and trust in him for uh, in his death and resurrection for your uh, salvation, you are his people, and he views you as a sheep, precious, and you're never a burden to him. And he continues, verse 35, it's now late. Jesus has been teaching the people all day. When it grew late, his disciples uh, came to came to him, and they said to him, this, this is a desolate place, Jesus. The hour is now late, as if they have to remind him, like, let's get our priorities straight here. Send them away and go, uh, to, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves uh, something to eat. But Jesus uh, responds to them and says, you, you give them something to eat. Now, I, I, I wouldn't mind actually pausing there. If I, if I were in the scene, I'd love to stop and listen to their conversation. I'm guessing the disciples had a little, at least a little bit of back and forth. Like, is he serious? What is he, is he talking? What? What? We just came back from a trip. He told us to not to take anything on the trip. Now, he wants us to feed, feed these people? What, what is this all about? I think Jesus here is wanting to force his disciples to realize, just after they probably all reported everything they did and, did and said, is to realize, actually, you have no resources, guys. You're actually pretty weak. Can't you just give these people some bread? So that they feel that they're, in, uh, that they're at, at, at the end of their rope. You know, as a parent, you, you probably do this. You got the little guy, he thinks he's he can, ready to take the world by storm, he can do everything. You know, and you're out trying to fix something with him, say a, a tire or something. And he's like, oh, I, I can do it, I, I can do it. And he's like, all right, yeah, go ahead, let's take off the lug nut. And you, you just give it to him. You give him, the, you give him the tools and let him try it. It doesn't take long before he realizes, oh, wait, no, I can't, never mind, I can't even do that. But you, you have to let them do that. You have to let them feel that. They don't have the resources. And it seems to be a pr pretty... Uh, Pretty large consensus that uh, this is more sarcasm as they respond back to Jesus uh, in, in verse 30, 37 there. And they said back to Jesus, what, you want us to go buy 200, uh, go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? To 200, one denarii would be one day's a wage. So either like, based on the crowd, 5,000 people, possibly also um, women and children included in that, so possibly up to 10, 15,000 people. So what, but you want us to spend over half a year's wage? We didn't even take money on our trip, and all. where are we going to get that money? You want us to go spend all that on, on, and to get food for these people? We don't have that kind of money. <laughs> Verse 38, he says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. You can just hear them as, as they're walking, trying to, when they found out, they said, we've got five and two fish. What do you, th what do you think? Uh, if we could draw, bring this down to scale, I, I don't know what this would be. You know, I, we got a hundred people here or something. So maybe be they coming back. We got five saltines. What do you think? You know, <laughs> now you, you, there's there's a couple scenes here that should uh, probably just immediately be uh, brought up to mind here. Uh, you got you got Numbers 11. Remember the people are complaining against God. And God tells Moses, hey, Moses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the people meat for a month. Moses says, well, now that might be problematic. What, are you going to kill all the flocks 
around, and the, is that going to be enough meat? We've got 600 feet people on foot here, plus women and children. Uh, or, or are you going to take all the fish to the sea? That ain't going to feed all these people. And God says, what, is my, is my hand shortened? Now you're going to see whether or not my word will come true for you or not. And in come the quail. Or you have uh, Elijah uh, telling the, the, the woman uh, to go make bread uh, with the flour and the, the, the jar of oil. So the, the last bit she's got, and yet by the power of God, she was, she was, her, her oil jar was sustained to be able to continuously make and make and make until God provided rain once again. Because God alone has the power to multiply food like that. Nobody else has that kind of power. Or Elisha, uh, a man of God comes. Elisha is out uh, with uh, some other prophets and uh, a man of God comes and brings 20 loaves of bread. And Elisha says uh, to uh, his servant, he says, okay, give, give that bread to the, to the men. And the servant says, what, are you crazy? This amount of bread, they ain't going to feed 100 people. What, are you, what am I going to do with this? And he says, oh you'll, oh, you'll see. God will multiply that. Now, the, numerically, this is probably even, this is meant to be that story on steroids. You know, in Elisha's day, it's 20 loaves of bread, 100 people. And even he says, that, that's not going to do it. Here we got five loaves of bread, two fish, and at least 5,000 people, possibly up, up to 12, 15. This is, this is meant to, to draw the pictures of God is in your midst. Verse 39, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all. Now, Mark doesn't go into detail of where this miracle happens. At least in the picture, he's, he, he still has the five loaves and the two fish as he's giving thanks and hands it to the disciples. So most likely, it's as the disciples here are handing it out, it's just continuously there. And it just keeps regenerating and multiplying. In any case, the disciples here are supposed to be picking this up. They're supposed to be picking up who this man is. Now, what's, what's interesting is most likely the, the, the crowd actually doesn't even know the, this miracle is going on. Throughout the book, you keep watching as the, the crowd is responding to Jesus. Here we have no response from the crowd. Most likely, they're not the ones that notice this. It's only the disciples. This is a little bit like John 2. Remember when Jesus uh, puts, uh, changes the water into wine? It's not everybody didn't know about that miracle. It's for specific people. And Jesus here trying to teach the disciples something specific, that he alone has that kind of power to multiply the bread because he alone is God and has the power to give them the resources they need to carry out their ministry here. At any rate, 42, they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. This is more than they started with. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Well, I mean, what a day. What a day that would be. What a privilege, too, of the disciples of actually being able to see this miracle, live the miracle, and be aware of it. The Lord Jesus revealing his power, his authority, his glory right before uh, their eyes. And we ought not miss, brothers and sisters, of what, what a simple privilege it is that, that God has drawn you right here to this moment to even be reading this yourself. There's many other things you could be doing today. But God has brought you here with this passage 
to reveal to you who Jesus is. This is God who comes close as a shepherd to care for his people. And he's revealed it to us. He has all authority. This is our king. This is our Lord. And brothers and sisters, can he not be trusted today? Some of you have weeks ahead of you that are going to be difficult. Can we not live underneath the wing of this shepherd? Can we not lay our anxieties down at him or put our burdens on him because he will care for us? Oh, this is a good shepherd worth laying down before. Can we not move toward him in our fear versus running away from him? Now, Mark doesn't linger here. Mark moves immediately right on into the next scene uh, because he links these two. Immediately, uh, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while Jesus himself dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Now, if, you know, if, if it were me on this boat, I, I, you know, the disciples here, I, I, I probably would still have some bread with me that I'd, I'd probably be looking at it constantly. Like, man, does this still work like that? Not regenerating. This is, that was amazing. I mean, the, the conversation on this boat must have been uh, quite uh, energetic. I would think a lot of laughter, excitement. Uh, of course, we're, we're told that wind uh, starts up, but this, this is an exciting moment. They've just seen an incredible miracle, and now Jesus is off up on the mountain to pray. This is, this is very much like Moses going up on the mountain to pray, leaving the people down on the bottom of the, of the mountain, and Jesus is now uh, separate from them. Uh, in verse 48, and he saw them. Now, keep in mind, this is nighttime. Uh, the they're way off in the sea. He saw them, that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, this would be about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Now that, that phrase there is pretty interesting, right? At the end of verse 48, he meant to, he meant to pass by. There's been different uh, ideas of what's going on here. My understanding of what's, what's happening here, uh, this language is very uh, much coming from uh, Exodus 34, uh, when God passed by Moses. So the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, uh, that Greek translation of Exodus 33-34 uses this very same phrase. That remember, So remember the scene there. Uh, Moses, talking to God, says... Just let me see your glory. And God, God tells Moses, you know, I can't, you can't see my face, Moses. You can't see my face and live. But I will let my goodness pass before you. I'll tell you what, I'll put you in a rock. I'll put my hand over the rock. I will pass by you. And when I pass by you, I will take my hand away from the rock and you will see the back of my goodness. But you cannot see my face. And so I believe what's, what's happening here. Uh, the disciples are being given a little bit more of revelation of who Jesus is. He's going to pass by them or reveal his glory to them and let them see. And what's supposed to happen 
is that as they see the glory of Christ on display, walking on the water, that what they're terrified of and what they're struggling with, they're okay. They're content because they've seen the glory of Christ. But that's actually not what happened uh, in this scene. Uh, They respond quite differently than that. Uh, They're not exactly comforted. Verse 48, uh, I mean, before we read it, I mean, what would you do? Jesus is walking on the water. I mean, sometimes I wish that uh, we would be given clear pictures of what these guys' faces look like or how they respond in a scene. I don't know. I'm just imagining it, okay? But so if I were to draw a picture of this or something, I'd probably have one guy picked up an object and he's ready to throw it, you know? One guy picks up an oar and he warns the figure, Oh, we got oars! Stay back! One guy's just screaming, Ah! If it were me, I'd probably be running to the other side of the boat. You know, I, not that that's going to help that much, but he looked at me. I mean, look, they're terrified, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. Now, keep in mind, that, you know, this is dark. They're, they're, they're in windy seas, getting hit, pelted on the face with water. They don't, it's not like they have flash, you know, flashlights or street lights all over. They can see you know, 40, 50 yards. They can see a little bit before them. And suddenly, as they're fighting the winds, all of a sudden, there he is. A man walking on the water. Not floating in the water. Not on a raft in the water. Not swimming in the water. But he's standing on top of the water. They see him. They cried out, verse 50, because they saw him and they were terrified. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them. It was probably loud, because remember, it's windy. And he said to them, Take heart! It is I. Do not be afraid. This take heart, this is be courageous in the face of this terrible, frightening situation. Take heart. And then this, this uh, it is I. This is the, the statement, I am, that John likes to use in his gospel. I am. This is, this is pulling up the imagery of, of Yahweh, the Old, Old Testament. Who, who shall I tell them? Who, who are you? Tell them I am. I'm the self-existent one. I don't depend on anyone. I am God. I'm the eternal one. Here Jesus saying, take heart because I am. I am God. And here I am. And you know, one of the most popular commands in the Old Testament is do not be afraid. Actually, throughout Scripture. Some have said it's the most popular. I I don't have the numbers for it. But do not be afraid. And oftentimes, what's usually linked to why you should not be afraid is because God is with his people. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Do not be afraid. I am is in your midst. You don't have to be afraid. I'm with you. And then, 51, rather than Exodus 34, God continuing on to pass by, what do we have in verse 30, 51? Jesus then gets into the boat with them. And the wind ceases. And 
they were utterly astounded. Why do you think? This, this is the, the astounded. It's sort of like you translate that like dumbfounded. They were speechless. If you were to, if you were to do an interview with the, the Apostle James at this moment, say, hey, James, hey, I know, we know you were out in the, in the sea, in the, in the water, and you just saw that scene. You know, how, how would you explain it to the people back home? You'd probably say, you'd probably say this. There you have it, folks. <laughs> there, uh, what do you say to something like that? They're, they're trying to take it in. And then we have this phrase, 52. It says, because they did not understand about the loaves, but the hearts were hardened. See, the loaves was meant to be instructive to the disciples about who Christ was, and it, it didn't connect the dots. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't have gone and taught a lesson on this. I bet if you asked the, the disciples right after the loaves to teach a class on the power of Jesus, oh, they could teach you a class. It'd probably be a pretty good class. But when they get into the situation where they're Faced with something fearful, suddenly that loaves thing, it didn't it didn't hit. It wasn't seeping down. This is the, the intellectual theology versus the functional theology. They're like sheep. They're like sheep. Foolish sheep, the disciples. And this is our world. This is, this is exactly what I would do. I'm no different than these guys. This is the way I live. Now, why, why is it? Why, why don't we always understand? Why don't we fully grasp who God is in the sense that we actually live in the good of it? Sometimes it's because cognitively we're just not fully understanding. I mean, that, that can happen, right? So, so maybe it's like, I don't fully understand. How, how, how can I, the, the promise is that Jesus will, will, will never let, let us go, right? He holds us in our hand. He's, we're going to persevere to the end. And yet there's this whole idea of free will. And maybe I can't, I, I can't make all this work. And I, I can't figure that out cognitively. So I'm, so I'm wrestling with it. I'm, I don't understand it. So it hasn't seeped down that way. That can be uh, one, one thing that happens. Or it can be emotional, right? I, I believe that God is, is faithful, I believe that, but I've had some people in my life that have been incredibly unfaithful to me, and that's hit deep, it's hit a chord, and so it's hard for me to connect these dots sometimes when I experience life. That, that, that can definitely be something that we experience. Or sometimes it can just be because of lack of experience, right? I, 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 can, I can read, I can believe that, that, that is true, that God says that he will provide all my needs for me, he will give me the grace that I need in the moment, I believe that, and yet... Maybe I haven't faced certain hardships. And, and it's needing God to, to graciously, slowly allow me to enter into those desolate places so that I experience it, so that I experience God's grace. Right? And for whatever reason, we, we struggle to, to live in the good of the reality that we so easily proclaim with our lips. Uh, one a book I read years ago that I really liked is called In Search of a Confident Faith uh, by J.P. Moreland and Kloss. Uh, Eisler, I, I like they, they, they use a distinction between stubborn unbelief, which is sort of this intentional rejection of the reality being proclaimed about God, versus a doubt, right, or a, a cognitive struggle. 
the stubborn disbelief or unbelief is, is just intentionally rejecting the truth. The other one, this doubt, is I, I believe so help my unbelief, this idea. Like, I, I believe it, but I struggle with it. I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to bring it to bear in all, all life situations. I struggle with that, but I want to. I want to I wanna walk better in the good of it. And so I like how they talk about faith. They talk about faith in degrees. Now, meaning, like, faith is something that we grow in. So that, that you can think of it this way, right? Um, you, in, on one level, you could say you either believe God or you don't believe God, and that, that would be true. But even on both sides, it might be more of a continuum, right? So um, it might be on the, on the one side, it's negative 1 to negative 10 about a truth about God saying, I disbelieve that. Sometimes I vehemently uh, an unbeliever vehemently disagrees with God, rejects the truth, and sometimes not so much. Then you have zero, which is totally neutral, which nobody is. Uh, and then you have one to ten. One to ten is a reality about God, something that I, I, I really hold strongly. I believe it. I experience it. I know it. And others I'm not so strong at. And that can change in, in situations. So take, for example... I believe that, that God will provide all my needs for me or something like that, right? I believe that truth. I can read it. I can teach my kids about it. And when the month is going well, I feel good about that. All it takes is some really hard things in life before all of a sudden I start moving down that, the scale, right? You lose a job. Family member dies. Maybe a family member has to go into you know, a medical facility. And suddenly... Is, is God going to provide for my needs? That, that, those questions start happening. Right? And I, I, what I like about their book is that we ought not be so discouraged as if, like, oh, that must mean I'm, I'm not believing anymore. No, saying, no, no, no. That means we're, our faith is, is weak in some areas, and we can grow that faith. It's a, grow, it's a great faith in degrees. And that's the way we all live life. That's Abraham. That's Moses, that's John the Baptist, that's Peter, and that's us. We do not have 100% faith where we never struggle. It's this idea, how do we grow? That's why one of, the, one of the questions I like to ask as we read the scriptures says something like this. It would be saying, why do I struggle to 100% walk in the good of this reality? I can read it here, and yet I'm assuming I struggle with it for some reason. It might be because of a past relationship. It might be because of a current situation. It might be because of something I'm not understanding. Whatever it is, I struggle with it. So in my mind, it's not a question of whether or not you and I lack uh, a functional theology, like a, to trust in God and walk in the good of the reality of God. It's not whether or not you, we do. It's how. And so I think the question that we should ask at times is how does your lack of a functional theology manifest itself? How does it manifest itself in me? How does it manifest itself in you? So that we can actually attack it, and we can grow it, and we can shape it. So for me, uh, I can be anxious about the future. Uh, many of you know that I, I had a series of years where I had panic attacks. Now, in those moments, I still, I still could have told you that I know that God is sovereign. I know that God is good. I know nobody can thwart his plan. I know that he is wise, and he is faithful. And yet I struggle as I look to the future. I look to the future of health. I look to the future of family. I look to the future of finances. Suddenly, what I believe isn't clicking. Uh, another, I can get frustrated. 
I, I believe that God is good and just, and he will, he will bring his, his justice. Sometimes I get frustrated when I see evil or crime, and I, uh, where's the justice? And I can feel this frustration, or I can look out at the culture, and I can see the culture going one way, and where's the justice? Or I can look in my own home, and I, I, just, I just want A, B, and C to happen, and it's not happening. Where's the justice here? Right? And I get agitated. I get frustrated. Or uh, sometimes my lack of functional theology is discontentment. I believe that God will provide all my needs for me, that God is enough, and yet I'm discontent. I want something else. I, don't, I can't always put my finger on it even. I don't even know. I just have this gnawing sense in me that I want something else, something tangible. Taste it, touch it, see it. Or I just have this unrest. I believe that God is faithful. I believe that God is in control. But when things are not fixed, when bows are not tied, when I feel like things are in disarray, I just have this unrest in my soul. And I have a struggle in that moment to trust that God is good. And God is faithful. And he is in control. And he's okay with the way things are. Because I sure am not. How does your lack of a functional theology, the goodness, power of God, manifest itself? It's a question uh, I think is worth asking. Well, as we uh, wrap up here, uh, hope you see that on this, in this passage, we see that Jesus' power is clearly on display. Jesus is God. We are like sheep. We are weak. We can proclaim that Jesus is God, and yet we struggle to actually live in the good of it. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't have to hide that truth. We don't have to be afraid of it. Jesus is not some, what, what, what you might think, he's not, he's not like some harsh security guard that's angry and just waiting for someone to mess up, and then he's going to come get them. Here we see in the passage, he's the good shepherd. I, I love this scene because these men had walked with Jesus for quite a while now. They had seen him raise a lame man. They had, they had seen him heal uh, many people who were sick. They had seen him uh, cast out many demons. They had seen uh, him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. At least three of them saw it. They had seen Jesus' power on display again and again and again. And here in this moment, they shouldn't be afraid. They shouldn't be terrified of him. And yet they are. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, ah, f- forget about you guys. That's enough of this. How could you be like that? I'm going to get some other disciples. You still going to be like that? You guys, you guys are crazy. How much more, how many more signs do I got to show you guys? This is unbelievable. I'll see you guys on the shore. No. He says, okay. And he comes in the boat with them as the good shepherd. This, this is like the parent who was just with the child when the lights were on, and the child knows there's no monsters under the bed. As soon as that light goes off, all of a sudden the monsters feel like they're real and they're terrified. The parent just doesn't go, what's wrong with you? I'm trying to get some sleep. The parent comes close. All right, buddy. All right, sweetie. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. This is the good shepherd. What a beautiful scene. You were a sheep when he called you, and you will always be a sheep, and he knows it, and he's okay with it. We don't have to be okay with where we're at. We're not who we one day will be but we're not who we once were, and God is growing us. Sheep-like though we be, God cares for us.